Hey, it's Jack. Mark is off this week, so I'll be hosting today's episode. Ever since generative AI and ChatGPT went mainstream at the end of 2022, we've had plenty of conversations on this show about what it could mean for healthcare and medical marketing in particular. We talk about what AI could mean for drug discovery, for public health communications, for brand strategy, but what could it mean on a more granular basis? What is the potential impact of generative AI on the commercials and advertisements that promote healthcare brands and their respective treatments? We've already seen agencies incorporate these innovations into their creative workflows, so what is the end game? Could generative AI have a chilling effect on the actors featured in these commercials? My colleague Lesha sought answers to these existential questions facing the industry in an interview with Lisa Leonard, a pharma voiceover actor, as well as Jim Kennelly, the owner of Lotus Productions. It's a very intriguing conversation that you won't want to miss. And after that, Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hi, Jack. Today, I'll recap how a group of Democratic lawmakers in Congress are pushing Big Pharma to address the ongoing drug shortages. And as for our trending segment, we'll be talking about the controversy surrounding Weight Watchers' Ozempic Hype House, Amy Schumer's Cushing Syndrome diagnosis, and the Where is Wendy Williams docuseries. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi, I'm Lesha Bushak, senior reporter at MMM, and I'm really excited to be here today with Lisa Leonard, a voice actor for Pharma, as well as Jim Canelli, owner of Lotus Productions, live here with us in the studio. Lisa has spent her voice acting career specializing in medical narrations, which she calls serving the healing world. Her expertise is in providing intelligent, warm, and reassuring voiceovers to projects and campaigns. She's able to turn dry technical scripts into a much more inviting listening experience. Jim has his background as a location soundman for several years, traveling around the world working on humanitarian crisis films. But he left the adventure life to take a job in New York with Lotus Productions, which specializes in voiceover commercials, starting out as an engineer, then ultimately working up to a director producer, and he now owns the company. Lisa and Jim are both here to discuss what it's like being a voice actor in pharma, and they have some crucial tips for healthcare marketers who may be working with voice actors in their campaigns. They'll also help us break down the impact of AI in medical voice narration moving forward. Lisa and Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, our pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Now, before we dive in, I wanted to have you both give a little bit of background on how you ended up in voice narration, specifically the healthcare and pharma area. Well, I'm going to go way, way back to sixth grade when I gave a speech in front of the entire student body on the stage at a microphone and running for student council office. Afterwards, the teacher came up to me and said, Lisa, you have a very good speaking voice. You should consider doing something with that when you're older. So that really planted the seed. And to any teachers who may be listening right now, I thank you. I applaud you. You never know when you're going to say something that's going to change somebody's life because indeed that just set me on the right path. And uh, all the 
years later, I went to college for mass communications. I got my degree, started in the radio world as a radio journalist, and then morphed into a radio disc jockey. And then it was in that position when I had to record commercials for my job. So I suddenly became a voice actor, a voiceover artist uh, in the radio world. And then that morphed into uh, helping with some narrations of some technical scripts. I I had known a, a producer and he hired me. Those sessions went well. He told his producer friends about me. And I'm just very happy to say that my network grew quite organically. And this was before the internet was doing all that it can do now. And uh, over 20 years ago, I, I got into the voice narration world and then healthcare narration became a specialty that really found me. It, I just must have done some good jobs for some producers who worked in that field. And uh, they were just word of mouth. And here I am today. And I just love it. I'm grateful. Amazing. I love how that teacher was ultimately the one that planted the seed and it really led to you, you know, you are specializing in, in medical narration. Very cool. So grateful. I've yeah. always been interested in how people share their best ideas one to another. That's a, a personal concern and that's what took me around the world, uh, working on humanitarian projects in the film business. But when I wanted to change my life and become a husband and a father, I took a studio job that specialized in voiceover casting. And so I took my worldly experience, my global experience, and started to work with not just announcers in New York, Chicago, and LA, voices all around the world and in many different languages. So we could offer diversity in our casting and really drill down in a very vertical way. Of course, we create voices and build voices on all platforms. So medical narrations, financial narrations, all the major topics are involved. Certainly, pharma is a huge business, a huge industry that needs communicating of ideas. So we go back to our roots of helping pharmaceutical companies, medical companies, doctors, practitioners share their best ideas one to another to help their patient outcomes. Wonderful. I love your trajectory from sort of, you know, this worldly, um, traveling on the world, um, experiencing all of that. And I'm sure you have some great stories there. But, you know, our audience, I'm sure, has worked with voice actors or will work with voice actors in some of their campaigns. So, Lisa, I was wondering if you could break down, you know, sort of detail a typical day in the life of a voice actor, how you go about your daily work, how you go about auditioning, just so our audience sort of understands, you know, your perspective here. Sure. Auditions come in almost every day uh, through a variety of places. There are some voiceover specific online casting sites. There are agents that represent voice actors who will send the opportunities. And then there's some direct contacts like relationships that uh, voice actors have with production houses or casting directors. And um, those auditions will come by way of email. I'll take time to prepare and record those, send them off, and then uh, get on to the next thing on the to-do list, which oftentimes is medical narration. And if so, I'll read through the script, uh, look up any pronunciations that the client hasn't provided that perhaps we could touch a little more on that a bit later. And then uh, just, um, yeah, get myself in the booth. I've got my iPad, everything's, you know, marked up if necessary. And uh, I record and then either I will do the editing or I will send the narration off to a woman who I work with, who, who does some editing for me for the longer projects. 
client interface, client communication. I'll do some social media. I'll listen to podcasts like the MMM podcast and others. And uh, yeah, and then I've got volunteer work. My dog needs me. I've got other things I take care of. So anyway, long answer to your question. What's a day in the life of a voice actor? And I know you both have a lot of insights that will be helpful to our audience of medical marketers to learn how they can best prepare to work with a voice actor to make the process as efficient as possible for someone who's overseeing a video or audio production or e-learning, how they can really prepare in advance. So can you start out with maybe what should be communicated to a voice actor in advance? One that's very important is what is the reason we're doing this? What is the intention of the project? Is it to sell something or to educate or to calm a nervous patient down, right? Jim, you would agree that each of those would require a totally different delivery style. We always ask the production company, who's who's forward facing? Who's going to hear this? Who's going to watch this video? It's one of the first questions we ask when we go about the task of casting. Right, because for example, if the audience is going to be... uh, physicians and I'm recording, you know, uh, updates on, on a research project, my delivery style is going to be like a peer. Like I'm very knowledgeable. I, I'm in this world with them. And yet if it's a patient narration, right, for a video that's going to be shown in a waiting room before a, a patient has some procedure or test done, I'm going to, again, sound knowledgeable and trustworthy, but I'll do it with much more warmth and compassion. Or on the flip side, if it's an ISI, just important safety information, you want someone like Lisa who can move through it very quickly, very efficiently, and just knock it out. And what about the actual script? Um, you know, medical marketers, when they're working on, on these projects, what kind of script should they be providing the voice actor, um, making sure that it's proofread, you know, the pronunciation guides to names, because, you know, in the medical world, there's a lot of long terms and and technical terms and and medicine names that are confusing to say. Um, What could, what could help them um, kind of get that ready? Yeah. A few helpful suggestions here. As for the pronunciation, audio files can be a voice actor's best friend. And ultimately that can save time and money because it will prevent having to re-record something. So for example, if there's a, a tricky uh, company name or a, a pharmaceutical name, a drug name that's uh, a little complicated, the client can provide an audio file that has the name being pronounced slowly, twice, three times, and then just do a little voice note on your on your cell phone. Send it off to the voice actor, and that right there could be a gift. And it'll take you ten seconds to record it, but it can make all the difference and save what could be you know an hour's worth of recording the original session. And then if I wound up saying the name incorrectly, I might have said it 30 times through the course of that narration. So think about all the time and money that that would take to fix. So instead of going for what could be a lengthy and possibly expensive fix, better to just take the extra few seconds to uh, provide the pronunciation in advance. If an audio file isn't possible, you can always just type it out phonetically. That's helpful. Right. What we have in our experience is when we do a session, bring Lisa in digitally into the session, we also connect to the directors and producers, the client. Very often in Lotus Productions, the client will have an expert on the line, Mm -hmm. and that person may not be involved in the timings or the creative direction, but that person knows exactly how to say all these medical names, how the product should be pronounced, or even the flow of the context within some very complex paragraphs. What we tend to do in our sessions is we brace it. Right now, this afternoon, we're doing a project for BGB Group here in New York City. It's a five-minute video for YouTube explaining uh, clinical results. The script is broken down into paragraphs. So we'll record each paragraph once or twice, 
The producer will tell us which graft they like, and then we'll move on to the next graft. Five-minute recording might take hour and a half, two hours, depending on the professional talent we've hired. But slowly we work through the script, we edit together all the best takes, and then we send that off to the client to be matched to the video. So that's how we go about it. Alicia, another tip I would like to give is to anybody who's writing a script, make sure that you're writing for the ear and not just for the eye. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that um, I think that a lot of your listeners may not know what they don't know. And so I'm really grateful for this opportunity to share things from uh, from our perspective, Jim and myself here. So, for example, oftentimes I'll get a script that has a slash in between two words. And so what am I supposed to do with that slash? Do I just say nothing? Do I say or or do I say and if there is a plus sign, do I read that as plus or? Or positive? Is it a point, a period, or a dot? <laughs> you know, greater you than go, or less than signs. Greater than or less than signs, yeah. So symbols also could use some explanation as to how you want me to say this. Um, it seems like a little thing, but again, you know, people are just so used to writing for the eye. And here we're now in this other world of, of conveying information that people will be listening to. So they have to be able to absorb it just with their ears, not with their eyes. So yeah. please tell us <laughs> what the voice actor what we can do to help your uh, your audience really understand. Our experience when we're hiring a professional talent with a specific talent like Lisa that deals with medical narration, we always get the script in advance. We get that script in advance. Maybe we get the video in advance or the storyboard in advance. It's my responsibility as a producer to check on timings to make sure the text is going to fit against the visual. We get that script into Lisa's hands in advance. We trust that she will have read it two, three times before we actually get together in the session. So we, we asked the question that I mentioned before, who's this forward facing? Who's going to listen to this project? And then I'll turn to Lisa and say, Lisa, do you have any questions? So it gives Lisa the opportunity then to ask the client, mm-hmm. how do you pronounce this? How is the context? And, and slowly we build this trust within the group of producers to create a great product. Absolutely. And I think these, you know, they seem like granular, small things, but really when you're prepared for this, it can really make the whole process a lot quicker, smoother, save time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there's other logistical tips that you both have. Um, There's a whole way of finding voice actors through online casting sites, ways to find voice talents in production house, and also how to prepare for a directed session versus a home studio recording. So can you provide some tips on all those as well? Sure. Voiceover, voiceover casting is an important part of the process because you, you want your brand or you want to communicate in exactly the right tone and style. So we get a sample of the script in advance, maybe a paragraph or two. Uh, we have a discussion with the client as to what type of voice are they looking for? U.S. English, U.K. English, maybe in Mandarin. Uh, do you want a man or a woman? Is it open? Is it just any voice? Uh, Do you want someone younger, 20s to 30s, or are you looking for a more mature voice? And again, depending, is it breast cancer? Is it prostates? What are we talking about? So we may adjust the voice actor and the audition to the product. We audition four, five, six, maybe 12 people on a script. We send that audition off to the client and they choose someone. They choose Lisa. Great decision. Lisa's a winner. (laughs) And now these talents that we're sending these scripts to are specifically geared to do medical narration. Uh, There are many different, it's not just my neighbor has a good voice or I heard this person on a Prell commercial, let's use her for him or her in another project. You want to find a voice that's good at the, in the genre that you're working in. Mm -hmm. And medical narration is a specific genre in the voiceover business. 
Uh, there are people who are good at improvisation and they're great at video games, mm -hmm. but I would never cast a person in video games in a medical narration. Mm -hmm. So you really have to drill down to get the right voice. It takes a little time. Really, we audition people, as Lisa can tell you, you audition overnight. It's a 24-hour process. Mm -hmm. And we can be up and running to produce something within 24 hours, 48 hours. And I'll also say that any of your listeners can contact myself, Jim, or any voice actor. And we all know each other, don't we, right? Yeah. There's just hundreds, thousands of voice actors out there. There are Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups for voice actors. So if if one of your listeners has a project, you're looking for a particular uh, type of demographic, gender, sound, whatever, uh, if I can't do it, I absolutely know people and I can make some introductions and that would help you cast your project. So there's a bunch of different ways. And following up sort of on what you, know, what you said, Jim, about having a need to find someone who specializes in the medical genre. Lisa, I wanted to ask you, since you do specialize in the medical world, what kind of is behind that, that expertise? Um, how do you approach the, the medical content versus what a voice actor who specializes in video games would do? You know, like what, yeah. what differentiates you from other voice actors? Well, the key thing is the multisyllabic words that you just don't hear in a lot of other industries. So that's something that over the years I've gotten very comfortable with. And may I also credit my high school teachers for this because I took four years of Latin. <laughs> and I, just, I really do believe that although I hated it at the time, uh, that has provided a very good foundation for me to look at huge words and not be intimidated by them because I can see that they are broken down into uh, smaller bits that make some sense to my brain and my mouth. So that's uh, that's a handy tool is uh, take Latin if you can. But if you can't, uh, there's just yeah experience, training and the proficiency of, of the pronunciation and the confidence to learn and sound knowledgeable and trustworthy. Because in the end, I know Jim would agree that that is so important in the medical field is to sound like you know what you're talking about, and you want to help the listener understand it. Yeah, focus, concentration, ease in delivery. These are the things that we're listening for yeah. when we're casting and hiring voiceover talents for medical platforms. And there are a lot of intricacies in a medical narration script that... Um, other projects don't involve. So research findings, you're contrasting, you know, this survey versus that study, and then the percentage, this percentage versus that percentage. And all these things have to, there's some nuances mm -hmm. that are very important. And in a voiceover session, I do a lot of that. It's, it's rather subtle. Um, and I don't think a lot of beginner voice actors generally get that, but in time and, and after just working with hundreds, thousands of scripts over the years, um, you get to know what is important and what to stress and the industry-specific jargon, that all comes out rather flowingly, rather naturally. And I think that that's more pleasant to hear than somebody who's like struggling with the with a complicated script. So there's an ease that makes it easier to listen to and nicer to listen to. Yeah, doctors are knowledgeable. They have a limited amount of time. You can only be in front of them for a specific moment. So you have to deliver the information, maybe 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, very quickly, very efficiently. You don't want a tone where you're talking down to them. You don't need to explain it to them. Mm -hmm. This is a complicated subject, but they already get it. So you want to be, have a talent who can move through it with ease, confidence, and really communicate the idea. Right. And the, the approach would be, you know, different for a, a patient group, for example, or healthcare consumers, where, you know, you might have to 
deal with the nuances of like what sort of disease or condition they're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that impacts their health and impacts their life. I would imagine that takes a lot of nuanced skill as well, depending on the therapeutic area and the patient group and things like that. Right. Someone's been recently diagnosed. Yes. Now we have to explain the procedure of how we're going to take care of you. Very important information has to be absorbed in a certain way and explained maybe now opposite of a doctor. Right. Now you want to slow it down. It's for the consumer. Mm-hmm. You want to make them feel confident that this is going to help them, maybe them or a family member. Lisa, obviously very good at that. Thank you, Jim. And also, you know, I, I'll share, I've struggled with anxiety. I don't necessarily love going to the doctor and waiting for a test result. I mean, really, who does? But that is the reality. And that is something that we're in this industry where we're motivated to try to help people, right? And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us with the work that we do to help make that 30 minutes in that waiting room less stressful, right? Less anxiety provoking and, and just reassuring when appropriate and when possible. Uh, that actually gives me some, some nice satisfaction in the work that I do, knowing that uh, with a calm, reassuring voice, I can hopefully make that patient experience a little bit better. Yeah, whether it's a new drug or a new clinical result, it goes back to helping that client share its best ideas one to another. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And I wanted to um, turn our conversation over to the future a bit and to something that we've all been talking about and hearing about a lot in healthcare, AI. And Jim, I wanted to turn to you because I know that you are experiencing um, a lot of changes with AI in the industry. And I wanted to ask you, how is AI currently being used in voice acting? Sure. Uh, Lotus Productions, we have a managed synthetic voice division, which means everything we do in traditional voiceover casting and audio production, we now do with synthetic voices. So how is it being used and how will it, what we tend to tell talent is it's going to supplement and augment your voiceover experience. What we're having a lot of success in, we asked Lisa to read a, the skeleton of a narration, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes. Uh, we Then we take that skeleton of a narration, and if we need to insert every county name in Pennsylvania, as opposed to having Lisa read every county name, we can now synthetically generate that name and put it into a narration. And so we start to hyper-personalize content and personalize content more vertically driven uh, after the casting of the voice that leads to better outcomes. That's the challenge that we're facing. Obviously, with... Uh, with new technology, anytime there's cautious optimism, which is which is well placed. But you can see, particularly in medical marketing, the interest and the investment is growing. And I think across a lot of industries, there's been talk of this fear that AI will replace the human element, you know, whether it's actors on screen or writers or voice actors. But from what you're experiencing now, you're basically saying that probably won't happen. They probably won't replace voice actors entirely. Um, You're still using them, Mm -hmm. you know, to record their voice so that you can use a synthetic voice. Um, They're still there to provide that human element and expertise. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what that would look like in the future? Right. Synthetic voice helps us speed up the delivery and again, hyper-personalize the information. But in the end, in the beginning, you still need a voice actor. To cre- even to create the synthetic voice. But the, the way we're seeing it used mostly these days is, again, just we record someone live and then we add a synthetic version of their voice into the narration. Uh, 
when you look at the future of voiceover and medical marketing, we already see the success of virtual assistants, chatbots, and what they can deliver. They can deliver uh, scheduling information, round the clock content, uh, or assurances can come to patients, medical medication suggestions. AI can collect the data that comes from those experiences. And then when you add a synthetic voice into it, you start to get a hyper-personalized experience. And these hyper-focused, hyper-personalized experiences, in our opinion, will lead to consumer or patient outcomes that are more efficient, that are more effective, and can help them you know, succeed in their daily life. We do a lot of work with the Withings Corporation, and they create cutting-edge devices that are scales, BP monitors, wearables like watches. So once again, AI can collect the data, you add a synthetic voice into it, and now you get a hyper-focused, personalized experience for the consumer or the patient. And that leads to better retention and better outcomes. And I wanted to bring in the this idea of trust because, you know, with someone like Lisa, obviously trust is a big factor um, when you are you know, communicating with patients or with doctors, you want your voice to come off as trustworthy to whoever your audience is. And um, Jim, I know you talked a little bit about building that trust with synthetic mm-hmm. voices and the use of AI as well. Absolutely important. Again, it comes down to nuance. I think the strength of having a human voice actor live in person is that he or she will be able to touch those emotional notes when and where it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. I have great respect for the AI technology and certainly the work Jim is doing and the synthesized voices I know will in some ways replace some of the work that I would normally get paid to do. But understanding that and respecting it, I'm also seeing a world where there's going to be opportunity for for real live human Lisa voice actor as well as robot Lisa voice actor. No no doubt. (laughs) There'll, There'll always be a human in the equation. Yeah. In medical marketing, we know now that you can, with AI, you can get the right message at the right time in front of the right person. You can buy time and, 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 and deliver your message. But in the end, that message has to have the right content. And more importantly, what you're asking about, that message has to be trustworthy. Uh, and so right now, there's a great effort by companies like my own. We're coming together in specific, I work with a group called the Open Voice Network. Mm. The Open Voice Network is part of the Linux Corporation. And we bring together designers, developers, lawyers, performers, unions, performers, audio production companies, and we all share information. And we're trying to create ways and educate people that they can trust these voices, these new synthetic voices that will be part of our daily lives. Uh, It's a big project, but it's a project that I've embraced and I'm really enthusiastic about. We work on contracts, we work on contracts, we work on sharing information. AI is still at, at its infancy, but if you take the time right now, this year, to start to learn about AI, generative AI, synthetic voices, within one year, you'll have learned so much and feel so much better about it. And you'll see how it applies to either a marketing career, a voiceover career, a production career, or any other career that AI will be involved in. I'd also like to add that Jim and I, over the years, have attended several voice and AI conferences, conventions, and we have heard from experts from all around the world. And there is no pushing this off any further. I mean, it is here. It is, it is, 
impacting our daily lives and it will continue to do more and more each day. And and efficiency is is the key benefit, it seems, and the hyper-personalization, as Jim has mentioned earlier. But, uh, you know, it's an exciting time, but also a time that is scary, right? Because voice actors can be exploited. I mean, this we could do a whole other podcast episode right. on, on the impact uh, in the negative way. But I'm actually really excited about it. And based yeah. on what Jim and I have learned and uh, and the, the people that we're associating with and the people who want to learn how to do it right and to do it ethically, right? And mm-hmm. to um, just help it serve people for good. That's wonderfully yeah. exciting. To go forward with ethics and transparency. Mm-hmm. What's exciting is that there's no blueprint. Yeah. We have to treat, we have to create this industry right now. And I always make the comparison, late 20s, early 30s, radio was around. The technology worked, people put it in their homes. What were we going to do with it? Uh, we have the same moment now. But it, that radio industry was created by individuals just like all of us who went to work, tried their best, experimented, went home, had a daily life. But slowly, slowly, over a number of years, radio became a major communications outlet. Certainly AI voices, synthetic voices, generative AI will go through the same experience. Absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely heading in that direction. And, and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of exciting new things happening um, in the in the voice acting world when it comes to AI. But as we discussed, there will always be benefits to having a human voice actor present. You know, there's going to be space for them in this new world as well. Absolutely. And coming back to you, Lisa, on that, you know, I was curious to wrap it up. If you recall any therapeutic areas or projects that you did that really resonated with you or that you believe really made an impact, anything that comes to mind? Absolutely. I so clearly remember getting a script and being in the booth and recording this and feeling like, I have found my calling 100%. I was hired to be the voice guide for patients who would be going through a diagnostic test having to do with macular degeneration. So it's my voice that's giving them the instructions, how many times to blink, when to look left, when to look right. But the script also called on me to reassure them, to say things like, you're doing great. Just two minutes more. We're almost done. And in that moment, I thought, I am able to use right now, like my whole being, sorry, this sounds very, very mushy and, and woo woo. But I'm, what I mean to say is that it enabled me to use my voiceover skills, my warm and compassionate sound, but also my empathy. I really, as I said, struggling with anxiety, I know how terrified people can be when they're, you know, dealing with a a medical uh, exam or a test. And so this was a chance where I felt like with my voice and with my voiceover skills, I could orally hold this patient's hand and guide them through a really scary experience and guide them through what could be an intimidating or scary experience. So I, I embraced that so much and it just felt like, all right, I'm using like all my gifts right now and it felt great. So I'd love to have opportunities to do more of that patient care voiceover in the future. Yeah, I love that story. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Lisa and Jim, for joining us on the MM&M podcast today and offering your perspective on being a voice actor in the pharma world. We really value your insight, and it was fun to also have you here in the studio live. If you'd like to learn a bit more about voice acting resources, you can find some links in the online version of this podcast episode. Thanks again for listening.
Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. A group of Democratic lawmakers are calling on big pharma companies to address ongoing drug shortages, which are impacting hundreds of medications from chemotherapy treatments to mental health drugs. Led by ranking member of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, Representative Jamie Raskin, the group sent letters to Pfizer, Sandoz, and Teva Pharmaceuticals detailing the impact of drug shortages on patients and hospital systems. They requested the pharma companies to take action to address the, quote, urgent need for those drugs. Shortages are affecting various cancer drugs, including carboplatin and cisplatin, as well as amoxicillin, a penicillin antibiotic. ADHD drugs like Adderall also currently face severe shortages. In a letter addressed to Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, the lawmaker said that while the U.S. has previously experienced cancer drug shortages in the past, the current one is, quote, particularly acute, with the majority of hospital systems negatively impacted last year. They noted that, quote, oncology practices were forced to ration doses or provide less desirable alternatives to a patient's recommended treatment. The letters also highlighted one of the root causes of generic drug shortages. Pharma companies often have less financial incentive to manufacture more generic drugs that are typically sold at a cheaper cost than branded medications. The letter stated that, quote, it is extremely concerning that pharmaceutical companies may not be motivated to produce generic drugs because they are not as lucrative as producing patented brand name drugs. As a principal supplier of carboplatin, cisplatin, and methotrexate, it is critical that Pfizer continues to increase production of these life-sustaining cancer medications, even amidst potential lower profitability. The lawmakers requested information from Pfizer, Sandoz, and Teva on the steps they're taking to address the current shortages. They've asked the pharma companies to provide responses by March 6th. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Trending. And now we're going to go to our healthcare trend segment, leading off with Bloomberg's story last week on the GLP-1 Hype House, sponsored by Weight Watchers. This was a day-long marketing event that social media influencers told the publication they were asked to promote a product they had, quote, never tried. The point of the event was to promote Weight Watchers' new prescription obesity drug service, which we have mentioned on the show before. However, influencers said they were offered money from the brand to talk about the program, which helps users get GLP-1 prescriptions like Ozempic or Manjaro, even though they hadn't used the service before. A few influencers also criticized Weight Watchers' decades-long approach to food and eating, with some telling Bloomberg that it contributed to their disordered eating. The company didn't respond to requests for comment from the outlet, citing a quiet period before reporting earnings at the end of the month. However, stocks of the company hit a 52-week low following the report's publication, and analysts have speculated that the company's legacy is weakened amid the post-New Year's diet season. Lesha, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because obviously you cover influencers quite frequently. And this seems like one of those instances where a brand probably was trying to do something productive from their perspective, but obviously it kind of backfired in terms of mainstream media coverage. Yeah, it's interesting that they weren't able to find any influencers who were on the drugs because, you know, I've written a story about GLP-1 influencers on TikTok, and there's plenty of them who um, have tried the drug and are happy to talk about their experiences on it, both positive and negative. So it's kind of funny that they weren't, you know, they didn't include influencers 
who actually had taken the drugs. That would seem to be a sort of basic um, aspect of this campaign. Um, but I also think it, it sort of highlights one of the challenges that marketers will have when it comes to advertising these obesity drugs. There appears to be a fine line between promoting the drugs and promoting fat phobia in many people's minds. Um, and as more and more pharma companies and brands try to jump into the GLP-1 market, um, it might be a challenge for marketers to sort of figure out how to best, you know, craft messaging around these products and the associated services like the Weight Watchers program um, in the most effective and the best ways possible. Um, I also think, you know, this this captures another conversation that's been happening right now which is sort of this like intersection of the body positivity movement with the emergence of GLP-1 drugs. Um, like randomly, there've been some, several articles I came across today in the New York Times and NBC News that were actually exploring this, this particular issue where some body positivity influencers are seeing GLP-1s as setting their movement back. And so I think it's gonna be, you know, one of these, the, the challenges and an important issue for marketers to kind of figure out as they dive further into the GLP-1 space um, and sort of figure out how to balance their messaging around this. I totally agree. I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a disability rights advocate, and they were talking about how when they look at the wellness space, they see a lot of ableist language that comes into play. And your point is so well received as it relates to the idea of like promoting fat phobia or fat phobic ideas instead of, you know, talking about, hey, these things could help you with X, Y, and Z aspects of your life. If you're framing it in a way where it's like, you have to lose weight because then you are somehow a more virtuous or redeemable person. That's where you get into a lot of trouble. And I, I echo your point earlier too. The idea that they couldn't find people that had used this service, which granted it hasn't been out that long, but you would think that if you're going to be bringing these people on and saying, hey, we're going to give you sponsorship or have you at the house or something, you would at least want them to have tried the product. I don't know. Right. I don't think that's asking too much there. Right. For sure. Yeah, I think that's a sort of a basic requirement for a campaign like this. Um, so, you know, I guess it's a lesson for, for marketers to take away. Absolutely. Not everything we mention on the show can always be so positive. But if there's one lesson that people can take away from this and maybe be a little more mindful in their approach to their marketing attempts, that's all the better. So for our second story, we're going to go to Amy Schumer's puffy face, which got a lot of traction on social media. And even my sister had sent along a link and said, are you going to talk about this on the podcast? And I said, no, there's no inherent reason to talk about a celebrity's puffy face. But Amy Schumer late last week announced that she was diagnosed with Cushing syndrome, which is how we get to talk about it on this podcast. In recent media appearances, fans had noticed that Schumer's face was looking puffy, leading to speculation as to what the cause was. Now she's confirmed that she has a rare hormonal disease that occurs from too much cortisol in the body. This can cause weight gain, high blood pressure, and bone loss. Cushing syndrome can be treated with medication, radiation therapy, or surgery. Schumer cited the rampant online speculation as one of the factors that contributed to her seeking treatment and resulted in a diagnosis that she described as freeing. She said, quote, I feel reborn. There are a few types of Cushing. Some that can be fatal require brain surgery or removal of the adrenal glands, she told Jessica Yellen's News Not Noise newsletter. While I was doing press on camera for my Hulu show, I was also in MRI machines four hours at a time, having my veins shut down from the amount of blood drawn and thinking I may not be around to see my son grow up. 
Lesh, I want to bring you into the conversation here because, again, kind of to the point that I said to my sister days before this even broke, not necessarily a story we would cover, but when something is able to be brought up like this, I didn't know what Cushing syndrome was. And when you have somebody as well-known as Amy Schumer, it obviously gives that a spotlight to discuss it. Yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunate that she, act, like, you know, the, the reason why she went to go to the doctor and get checked out was because she got so much uh, negative uh, feedback on social media about her appearance and um, a lot of body image backlash, which was very unfortunate that that was sort of the reason why she decided to get checked out. But fortunate that it ended up being a not super serious diagnosis. Fortunately, she she's mentioned that she had um, the kind of Cushing syndrome that can basically be treated on its own and sort of uh, she'll be able to recover perfectly fine from it. So that's good to hear. I know she's been posting on Instagram a lot since then, basically sort of being open about that and also trying to push back against some of the misogynistic, hateful comments that she got about her appearance. Um, I know she's not the first female celebrity to um, have the spotlight on their their appearance um, when in reality it's actually a medical issue that's contributing to weight gain or you know looking a certain way. I know Selena Gomez has also had a lot of um, attention due to weight gain. I believe she has some medical issues as well that contribute to that. So you know it's something that I feel female celebrities have to grapple with a lot, unfortunately. But overall, good news to hear that uh, she's she's going to be okay and she'll she'll recover well from this. So, yeah, you talk about it. It leads perfectly in from our previous story about Weight Watchers, where there is this whole idea of like, oh, if you look heavier or anything like that, that is somehow a judgment on your character and your points well taken about Selena Gomez dealing with lupus all these years and the side effects that can have on the body. It also leads perfectly into our third story, which you talk about the appearances of a female celebrity and what that means and how you're judged. Where is Wendy Williams debuted over the weekend? And this is something that Lesh and I were talking about off mic before I get into the story, but it's going to kind of define how this conversation goes. We don't know a ton. There's a lot of conflicting information around Wendy Williams' health, around the state of her affairs, all that sort of stuff. So we're going to give you just kind of the basics that we have as of right now, talk about what it means in terms of how we discuss cognitive issues and really what the lesson is from there. So Lifetime has put out a four-part docuseries, came out over the weekend called Where is Wendy Williams? The daytime talk show legend was diagnosed with dementia and aphasia late last week before the docuseries debuted. And as some on this podcast, and as some listeners may recall, Oscar-nominated actor Bruce Willis was diagnosed with aphasia in 2022, as well as frontotemporal dementia called FTD. FTD is the most common form of dementia for people under the age of 60 and affects 50 to 60,000 people in the United States. It often takes an average of just over three and a half years to obtain an FTD diagnosis following the first symptoms. There is no cure. And the documentary really dives into the mental and physical decline of Wendy Williams, who was a radio talk show legend for years, obviously had the daytime talk show, just always so quick and spry and always with a comeback. You watch the docuseries or any of the clips that have been around on social media, you see that is no longer the case. And actually, in May of 2022, she was placed under a financial guardianship by the New York State Supreme Court, which is where things start to get messy. It's where I want to bring Lesh into the conversation, because in seeing some of these clips and coverage online, you would never allow somebody in that state to be presented in that way. But we're not even sure that Williams has 
her own control over that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I have not seen the new series and I was just doing some brief reading on this um, before hopping on. Um, I guess I have more questions than I have answers or commentary at this point. Um, I have a lot of questions because it seems like I've actually a very complicated situation. And my first question when I was reading about it that came up was, was sort of like, is this series being a bit exploitative of a person who does have, you know, frontotemporal dementia and is under a conservatorship right now. She has a legal guardian, um, I believe since 2022, that's not her family, um, sort of controlling her decision-making because of her cognitive issues that she's had the last few years. Um, so my, my initial question is, you know, I, from my understanding, she's still listed as an executive producer on this series and her family is involved and she's obviously consenting to being filmed to an extent. But given her recent diagnosis, it does bring up a lot of questions about whether this series is being a bit exploitative of someone who might be dealing with a lot of difficulties that shouldn't be airing for people to kind of, you know, watch as drama for their own enjoyment, I guess. Um, that's one of my initial questions. And then I, I have questions about sort of uh, the conservatorship as well, because from my understanding, the legal guardian filed a lawsuit trying to block the series from airing, which ended up being thrown out and the series was, series was aired. But there was apparently some reason for, for that person's desire to block the series from airing. But Wendy Williams did release a statement recently um, following her, the, the announcement of her diagnosis. So this is directly from the source, apparently. Um, and her statement was that she had immense gratitude for the love and kind words. Quote, let me say, wow, your response has been overwhelming. The messages shared with me have touched me, reminding me of the power of unity and the need for compassion. And she also noted, I hope that others with FTD may benefit from my story. I continue to need personal space and peace to thrive. So just wanted to throw that, that statement directly from Wendy Williams in there as well, that she is aware that her diagnosis has been made public and she seems to be supportive of sort of this idea of raising awareness about the issue. And it's so I'm glad that you raised those questions, Lesha, because it's so tough to like delve into something like this, given that there is so much nuance. And, and like we were talking about, there is unfortunately a test case that you can kind of follow where, you know, Bruce Willis's family has basically pulled him out of public life. Like he no mm -hmm. longer does movies, even the Golden Raspberries that had kind of mocked his last two years of making movies rescinded the award they gave him after they mm -hmm. figured out that he was diagnosed with aphasia because because that wasn't his doing, you know, you're just not right. cognitively aware, you can't exist in the world. And the thing that's been troubling in watching part of the series and seeing the clips online, she is still in a way kind of being trotted out into the world. And mm. it's a loud, confusing environment for anybody, let alone somebody who's dealing with these sorts of issues. So your point about yeah. it being exploitative is so well received, because on the one hand, we're seeing a family saying, we're not going to subject them to this. And on the other hand, we don't even know if it's the family at that point, it's under somebody right. completely different. You know, yeah. does she even have the wherewithal to make these decisions? Right. Um, and typically, I think people with dementia or FTD, like as in the case with Bruce Willis, um, the families are often, you know, the ones making the decisions to either keep this public or private. Obviously, the family doesn't have legal uh guardianship over Williams at this point. So it's a bit of a mess from that perspective. Um, 
But, you know, as it often is with these celebrities announcing their medical diagnoses, the, the, the silver lining, I hope, is that it will continue to raise awareness for FTD um, and also just mental health in general, because I know that Williams had struggled with a lot of mental health issues throughout her life, including substance abuse issues. And anytime that a celebrity can sort of raise awareness and say, hey, other people aren't alone in dealing with these things, I think is hopefully a silver lining. And your point so well taken about the substance abuse issues. I'm, I'm writing about this for my column this week about the docuseries and raising the profile of dementia and aphasia. But that's something that can't be overlooked. Like there is a long documented history of Wendy Williams issues with uh, recreational drug use and, yeah. and other concerns like that over the years. And I spoke with a substance abuse expert uh, from UCLA who was talking about how that can contribute in some cases to right. dementia down the line. And that's something that can't it could it, exacerbate and yeah yeah you can't separate the two so i think it's an important consideration there i i don't know if i can encourage you know usually when we bring these things up like oh you should go check out this documentary you go should mm. check out this movie or something i don't know in good conscience i can encourage right. people to but i think understanding the points that we talked about here in terms of how complicated this is just go into it with that mindset I know we don't usually like to leave the show on a, a sour note, but I appreciate our audience for kind of bearing through some some more challenging uh, questions and topics there in our trend segment. I thank you all for joining us on this week's episode. Be sure to listen to next week's episode. We have a very special guest. Can't reveal who that is, but it involves some major medical marketing news. So tune in for next week. That's my tease. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 